Thank you so much. Good morning. Very cold day, very warm people. Good to be able to be gathered like this and be able to worship our Lord. And as John mentioned a little bit ago, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so we pause and we reflect upon what it is that God wants to teach us on a day like today, leading into the study of God's Word. So, breaking from what we will be covering in Second Thessalonians for this Sunday, I'd like to turn our attention to the book of Exodus. And in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, what you and I are given is a tremendous insight into the tensions and the challenges, the conflict, the contrast to the cultures of life and the cultures of death. Because what we have before us now are some remarkable women who are willing to stand up against the governmental forces that were, that were seeking to have the Hebrew boys put to death, and instead they were going to embrace life. Now, verses 1 through 7 of the first chapter of Exodus set the stage. I'm going to pick it up in our reading, verse 8, and read down through verse 22. And here we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, <coughs> the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, this is poignant. There are some very powerful lessons found in here. 
typically what I will do on a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, delve more into the biology because that's my training. But we're going to do more of a, a study in the cultural and how the scriptures are the lens through which to understand society and the conflict and the contrast between life and death here as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming into your presence now. We want to be able to see clearly what it is that's at stake. How the evil one has continuously pressed the lie and the culture of death as an obstacle against the truth and the culture of life. And the clash that took place in the Garden of Eden is a microcosm of what's taking place worldwide today. And even the abortion movement as a whole. For this congregation on this cold day, and I thank you, Father, for those that would be willing to come out in times like these. We need to be empowered by your Spirit, equipped by your Word to be able to relate truth to everyday life. So in these matters, warm these hearts. And engage these minds. And again, Shape these wills. I've come here, Father, to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Spending time with the youth group on December 9th down in Cafe 19, wall to wall people, we were doing a Q&A session with the senior pastor, and you never know what they're going to be asking you. And it's fantastic. Um, they are, I love them. They're very special people. And one of those out-of-the-box type questions was, what's your favorite Dr. Seuss book? And, of course, you think about Cat in the Hat and all the other ones. But the one that immediately came to my mind was, Horton, he is a who? And I asked them, do you know which, which uh, section of the book really grips my mind, my heart, my soul? And somebody jumped right in with me as I began to quote it from Horton Here's a Who. A person's a person, no matter how small. And I thought about that when I came across a statement likewise that took place in an interview uh, that World Magazine was producing. Where Lindy West, who in the, the Jezebel Journal, has started a Shout Your Abortions campaign. Where aborting women, we are now told, have generally been reluctant to speak, according to her, of their experience. But, uh, says, having an abortion made me happy, she tweeted. My abortion was in 2010, and the career I've built since then fulfills me. Now, hundreds of women added their sentiments, and the most common message was along these lines. And now, listen carefully, quote, I respected my life, relationship, and body enough to do what was right for me. Now, notice she didn't say do what was right, period. She said do what was right for me. That's moral relativism. Whereas in the end of the book of Judges, it says everybody did what was right in his or her own, his own eyes. 
Well, she goes on to say that it's a fact. Is that really? It is a fact without caveat that a fetus is not a person. As Dr. Seuss would say, a person's a person, no matter how small. I always find it interesting that the offspring, which is literally what in the Latin fetus means, offspring, that people all of a sudden go abstract and start throwing Latin at us and use the word fetus in developmental biology stages. But she says it is a fact without a caveat. Will anybody challenge this, that a fetus is not a person? I own my body. Now that's an authority statement. And in the issue of sanctity of human life today, in the issue of abortion, the issue of authority, the who has ownership, who has ultimate say, is at the forefront of this clash. But she dogmatically makes these statements. It is a fact without caveat that a fetus is not a person. I own my body, and I decide what I allow to grow in it. Now, the question is, for the Evangelical Free Church here in the Sheboygan County, how do we interact with such people? How do we enter into a dialogue? How do we minister at the point of need where we see that the culture of death as it ties to lies needs to be counteracted by the culture of truth embodied in the life of the one who three days later rose from the dead? What I want to do with you is to draw two incredible distinctives that are found here in these verses as it relates to the way in which believers are going to have to address the issues of the hour that are at hand, nationally as well as globally. We're going to inch into these two distinctives, but before we we begin to tackle them, I've got to make my way through the first seven verses or so of Exodus. And what is missing in the very first word of the very first book of Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, is the conjunction, the word and. It's missing there. There is a link between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus penned by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's as if Moses wants to continue on with what was just said. And what was just said? Well, the last verse verse in the book of Genesis reads, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So now we are dealing at the very onset with this matter of death and now contrasted with the matter of life that comes our way in these opening verses. It should read literally, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, and then the various names of Jacob's sons are listed here. In verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. God had preserved them when there was famine in the land, and now they have come into this land of Egypt. And God had promised in the book of Genesis that you and I would read in Genesis 15 this very thing. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. 
And that is exactly now what is happening here. But in verse 6, we are informed then Joseph died. He had been, in essence, prime minister in the land of Egypt. And all his brothers and all that generation. And there are those that sometimes wonder, will the truths and the lessons of the past be carried on to the next generation? Or will there be a distant memory with regard to who God is and how God works? And now this question will be put to the test. Because Joseph and his brothers have passed away. But God is the great I am, as the book of Exodus is going to point out to Moses. God has not died, even though this generation has. And so, in keeping with God's promise, verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and greatly increased greatly. In other words, even though their political leader was no longer in charge, their sovereign God was. You're going to have political favorites who will have terms of office and then no longer be in the position that you long for to be able to execute policies and decisions that will protect life. People pass away. But the great I am is revealed in Exodus. Himself is the one who keeps his promise. And you and I are told in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful. There is the culture of life. And increased greatly. And why is this happening? Well, you might remember back again reading from Genesis chapter 15 that God took out Abram into the landscape and he had an astronomy lesson for Abram. He said, look out over the stars, look at the heavens, number the stars if you're able. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, we've set up the tension. Joseph has died, death. The people are growing, they are multiplying, life. The evil one is going to try to thwart the promise of God because within the land of Egypt are these Israelites who are going to be, one in particular, part of the carrier that will lead in the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah to come into this world. Will the evil one successfully thwart this promise of God to bring Messiah in? You pick it up now in the beginning of verse 8, and here we have the first of two significant distinctives with the way in which people of life have got to be faithful to the God of life. That number one, remain faithful to God even when the quality of human life is diminished. Now the evil one's going to try to soften up the Hebrews so that they will feel threatened by the political forces within the land of Egypt, because you read now in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The word arose here from the Hebrew carries with it the idea to rise against 
In other words, there is a new ethnic group that has made its way into Egypt and has overthrown the previous ethnic group. That is why, then, we've got a new king who did not know Joseph. An invasion has taken place. This new dynasty, if you're prone to write next to your verses here, you might want to write the word H-Y-K-S-O-S. These are the Hyksos who have come in and overthrown the previous Egyptian leadership. What is so fascinating about the Hyksos and the reason they could overthrow the previous Egyptian leadership was that they were the ones that were the first to utilize chariots in warfare. And you know how that turns out at the Red Sea. So now you're already painting a historical picture and why you would have such a leadership that would not remember or know Joseph, prime minister, who had done so much for the people of this land in a prior era, a great political era where he had established granaries to be able to protect the people in the midst of famine. But now the evil one sees a point of vulnerability. He sees now that the political leadership of Joseph is no longer there. Perhaps he can make an inroad and thwart this movement towards the one who will be placed in the womb of Mary, who will die on that cross, and then three days later validate the principle of resurrection. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And you can't overlook this, you see. There is so much at stake regarding Jesus in that verse. Pause. Billy Graham tells the story of the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. The ink of the Declaration of Independence document is so severely faded, the signature of John Hancock, he had written, was barely legible. When asked about that fact, the tour guide had then commented, quote, it continues to fade, but no one can do anything about it. Unquote. So now the memory of how God used Joseph is fading in the land. And maybe you look at the political landscape nationally as well as globally. And you say it seems as though God's truth and God's values are but a distant memory. And there is a fading that is occurring. And it seems as though politically nothing more can be done about it. But you see, God is the great I am. Joseph was not. And politically throughout the world today, God is the great I am, and the political forces of this world are not. And so now God is the forever present one. And we've got to bear that in mind when you see the clash of the culture of life versus the culture of death. There arose a new king over Egypt. He brings in the chariots with him. He's able to overcome the prior emperor, the prior pharaoh. But this one did not know Joseph. And now, like so often in the case when policies are being enacted politically, 
A policy is about to be enacted politically that is born in fear. And so in verse 9, he said to his people, Behold! Now when you see the word behold, it's meant to be an attention grabber. Behold! The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He's feeling threatened. Now the culture of life will always be a threatening factor when it confronts the culture of death. After three days, Jesus is raised from the dead. The disciples are empowered with historically validated truth. And so the religious authorities now have got to come up with a scheme, a strategy shrewdly to explain this away. They wanted him to be dead. The sovereign God fulfills his purpose and promise. He's alive. The great I am is at work here. See the clash? And know where all this leads? It's going to lead to the one who's placed in the womb of Mary, you see. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. He is in essence saying, This is what you and I know God had promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. So politically, he's going to try to thwart God's plan. Impossible. But in verse 10, utilizing similar terminology as that used by the evil one who disguised himself as crafty within that Garden of Eden, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. That word multiply just keeps multiplying, doesn't it? And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now the Israelites were the immigrants into the land of Egypt. And if he now begins to go against this economic force, and this military force that can be provided for him, and instead he alienates them against him, then he's creating his own death warrant. But what does he do? In verse 11, you and I are informed. They set taskmasters over them. There is this powerful portrait in one of the the pharaoh's tombs in Egypt of taskmasters who have whips in their hands and they are overseeing the work of slaves. Archaeological evidence, in fact, to support the biblical account. Not only do you have the historical evidence of Hyksos bringing in chariots to validate what is said at the Red Sea matter where the chariots were overwhelmed by the waters that God allowed to come down upon them, but here now, the archaeological evidence also supports this. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them. Circle that word, afflict. It is the very same word that God utilized, back again, Genesis 15, verse 13, 
The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's being validated. So they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But here's the thing. Just like the evil one, who in a subsequent time period will fill the heart of Judas and create such a culture of death mentality that Jesus is taken to that cross. God sovereignly superintends because that's exactly what was necessary to save us from our sins. Jesus going to that cross, and God can even use the intentions of the evil one to secure his purposes. Jesus, in fact, dies, but then the culture of life is validated. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. And here now we find that the Egyptian pharaoh is attempting to soften up the Hebrews, but instead he hardens their resolve. He thinks that by simply oppressing them, they'll back off. But in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Law of thermodynamics here, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. And the more they spread abroad. And so what happens? In other words, this is counterproductive, and what the Egyptians are doing is multiplying their own fear. The Israelites are multiplying their own people, and the Egyptians are multiplying their own fear. And you've got this incredible collision occurring here. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And I saw that, I thought about this account that took place during the Reformation time period when Theodore Beza made this famous statement to a king who's persecuting God's people. Sir, it is truly the lot of the church of God to endure blows. But may it please you to remember that it is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. God is about to wear out Pharaoh's hammer. And what God does here is that he is even using the most difficult and intense circumstances to bring about surprising statements and elements of grace, which at a very personal level you have to apply to yourself as well. God can take that hammer of life that seems to have ever found its way to you, to your family, to your job, and whatever, Many a hammer has been worn out by the sturdiness of God's grace. What happens? It's counterproductive. So what do they do in verse 13? They just keep intensifying their efforts. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Pause. Now, if you have ever participated in a Passover experience, a Seder, and you remember how you reach a point in the Seder where it speaks of the bitter herbs, and how the bitter herbs were to be a reminder of the bitter experiences that the Israelites had 
endured in the land of Egypt so that they would not forget. Look very carefully at the next verse. And made their lives bitter. God does not want the Israelites in the midst of their wilderness experience to look back favorably at the so-called good old days. Because the good old days are not necessarily the good old days. And the best good old days took place prior to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. Made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. Here's the hammer getting worn out by the anvil. And in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And you begin to wonder at this point, where are you, God? Why are you allowing my quality of life to be diminished? I'm clinging to your promises. I'm longing for your provisions. I need my sovereign God to reveal himself. At a crucial moment, Benjamin Franklin suggested that the delegates, as they had convened together in 1787, pertaining to the Constitutional Convention, embrace these words. The longer I live, Franklin said, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Now what the evil one will do at this point is that he will so attempt to soften up God's people that they are so wearied when it comes to the difficulties pertaining to the quality of life that they will then not have the strength to be able to stand up for the sanctity of life. Because that's what comes next here. And beginning in verse 15 down through verse 22 is your second significant distinctive for being faithful in the midst of an unfaithful culture that, number two, remain faithful to God even when the sanctity of human life is being challenged. And now the question is, will they have what it takes to stand up to Pharaoh when it seems as though Pharaoh has the capacity to take away everything that is so precious to them? Do you feel as though things have been taken away? And that what once was valued as precious is now lost? Check out how you stand up, stand out, sometimes stand alone. For God. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra. The other, Pua. These are most likely superintendents or directors of the midwife work throughout the land of Egypt pertaining to the Hebrews. Notice his edict. When you serve as midwife, in verse 16, to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, Pause. In that time period in obstetrics, there's archaeological pictures, the land of Egypt, that the Egyptian women gave birth in the upright position, utilizing 
what was then known as footstools. It's fascinating. And so now, look very carefully, because archaeology is even validating, as well as history, the biblical account. Verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. Now, notice the criteria. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And I thought about that. And my mind goes back to a time period when and our physicians and others in these services know something about this. It used to be the case that at graduation, the Hippocratic Oath would be recited. And when the Hippocratic Oath would be recited, there is a statement that C. Everett Koop and Francis Schaeffer noted in the book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? I'll follow that method of treatment which, according to my ability and judgment, the medical student would say upon graduation, I consider for the benefit of my patients and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. Furthermore, I will not give to a woman an instrument to produce abortion. What fascinates me at this point is that this was slowly but surely being removed at graduation gatherings. The University of Pittsburgh changed from the Hippocratic Oath to the Declaration of Geneva in 1971, which dropped that idea of utmost respect for human life from the time of conception. The University of Toronto did something similar, and soon there was a ripple effect throughout the northern continent of America. Well, how do you understand what's occurring here? Do you follow Pharaoh? Or do you follow God? And how does this relate to life today? When I think about this, I realize that what is at stake in the matter of sanctity of human life is the issue of authority. Who has ultimate say over the one in the womb. There's a Seuss who says a person is a person, no matter how small. There's a Jezebel writer by the name of Lindy West who says even in the midst of the amounting information that ultrasound provides with scientific evidence, she says dogmatically it's a fact without caveat that a fetus is not a person. Well, this is the issue of authority. Who has ultimate say? What I would argue for here is this. What you find when the culture of life is in conflict with the culture of death, what is at stake is the matter of authority as it relates to the matter of autonomy. What strikes me is that I see phrasing in today's medical journals such as patient autonomy. When I studied Greek, I learned that the word auto of autonomy means self. Nami comes from the word law. In other words, self-law. 
And the book of Judges describes the people as doing what is right in their own eyes. In other words, what this writer of the Jezebel Journal is in essence saying is that she wants autonomy from God's authority. And what the believer is going to have to do in this tremendous clash, the culture of life versus the culture of death, is to be able to point out to people that there is one has revealed through intelligent design who has ultimate say over the ordination of the days of our lives, that the parent is the means of life but not the source of life. God is the source. The parent is the means. And Miss West is making an argument for autonomy so she can embrace her own sense of authority, that she's the one that brought this child into the world, when in reality she was the means, but she was not the source. Because God validates who the true source is when three days later Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now here's where rubber meets the road. All of us experience accountability. And now these midwives are going to have to stand before Pharaoh and say, am I accountable ultimately to Pharaoh? Or am I accountable ultimately to God? Am I accountable to the Pharaoh who is involved in the taking of life? Or am I accountable to God who is the giver of life? Which is exactly the same situation the wise men faced when they came before another leader and politically had a plan to try to thwart the process of allowing for this Messiah to come into this world, to die for our sins, and then three days later be validated for what he did by being raised from the dead. You see how all this fits together? Now, you're drawing this out of the Exodus account. And these women show tremendous courage, but here's the challenge. When the quality of life is being diminished, people can feel so overwhelmed and so tired. Do I have what it takes to still stand up for the sanctity of life? William Wilberforce did. In the great movie, Amazing Grace, based upon all that we have studied of Newton, he did not give up when it came to the whole matter of slavery, Wilberforce. But Wilberforce stood strong in Parliament until there was the abolition of the slave trade. And now we need courage here, moral courage, because what the evil one does is he diminishes the quality of life so that people are too weary to stand up for the sanctity of life. And the culture it continues to emphasize self-law. And so a Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 where a 7-2 majority determines then, based upon their interpretation of the 14th Amendment, that there is the protection here of the rights of the woman to choose abortion. In essence, they're saying she is the source, not the means. We are saying that she is the means, but not the source. We help people understand that this is a clash of autonomy as compared to authority, it's the clash of death as it compares to life. As three days later, that empty tomb continues to scream at us as to where true authority is found. And so we look carefully here in verse 17. But the midwives 
feared Pharaoh? No. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. There's this multiplication of multiplication happening. And I thought about that and asked, and how does this past week even represent all this? A writer who goes under the pen name of Spengler. He writes, in 1985, the average Iranian woman gave birth to 5.6 children, one of the highest birth rates in the world. But after the war with Iraq, which killed between 500,000 and 100 million, excuse me, 1 million Iranian men, Iran's high birth rate was viewed as a liability. And so, in 1993, the government enacted a severe family planning law. The results were unprecedented. In seven years, Iran's birth rate dropped to less than replacement level. Not surprisingly, family planning groups and other anti-natalists hailed the results as a triumph. But listen to the rest of the story. What this now means is that fewer and fewer working-age Iranians are there to support its elderly pensioners. To make matters worse, there are signs that Iran's oil reserves are dwindling. According to Spengler, it's against this background of a looming crisis that we must understand Iran's belligerence. In the West, an unfavorable ratio of workers to retirees can place uncomfortable burdens on taxpayers. But in places like Iran, it can destabilize the society, threaten the regime, cause them to become increasingly aggressive. Thus, Iran's aggressive foreign policy, a response to the coming crisis, is that they will look elsewhere for dollars in order to apply their plans for their region. You see what we've got here? And how you're drawing this out of this text? And how autonomy versus authority is coming into play? And likewise, in the United States, what we've got to bear in mind is that not everything which is legal is moral. And so we need the Puas. We need the Shifras. And the midwives said in verse 19 of Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. I would have loved to have been part of the obstetrics ethics crowd here and listening to this comment. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now the question is, are they telling the truth? Which is what some ethicists who read this begin to ask. Is it right at times to tell a lie for the sake of protecting life? Well, first of all, don't assume they are telling a lie. A few thoughts here. Number one, this is a historical account. God is not moralizing, just simply describing at this point. There's silence with regard to their statements whether what they were saying was true or false. Number two, I do not know the communication level at that point in time in history in the land of Egypt as to whether or not when one was about to give birth, there was immediate information available to the midwives that you need to get over there. Number three, we don't know what the transportation level was like for the midwives to be able to get to the place where the person was about to give birth. Number four, we don't know the proportion of midwives overall to the proportion of the women who were giving birth. And number five, even if these midwives had told a lie, God is not blessing the lie. 
what is he then blessing? He is blessing them for fearing God. For twice in these verses, we are told here that they feared God. And so in verse 20, God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied. There's that word again. And so Satan is attempting to bring the mentality, the culture of death, soften them up with regard to the quality of life so they are not able to stand strong for the sanctity of life. And lo and behold, it's counterproductive. And as a result, people are stronger, yet multiplication continues to occur because the midwives feared God. He gave them families. But then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, he shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. He wants to simply assimilate the Hebrews into the ethnic Egyptian culture. But God is preserving the genealogy of the Hebrews so that there would be one from the house of David who would go into this world in embryonic form within the womb of Mary and the fullness of time come forth, go to that cross, die for our sins, and then the culture of life overwhelms the culture of death when three days later Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and the one within the womb of Mary. Hmm. That was not potential life. That was life with potential. And there's a big difference between the two. And so there will be a future day when the writer of Proverbs would pen these thoughts in chapter 24, verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not do this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? And so we get involved. With our sleeves rolled up, we stay engaged. Pam and I started in our days in which we started a church, also a crisis pregnancy center, next to one of the most liberal colleges in New England so that the culture of life could stand strong in the midst of the culture of death. And I think Dr. Seuss would like that. A person's a person, no matter how small, which needs to be stated graciously, lovingly, and accurately to Lindy West and others who close their eyes to the evidence of the ultrasound, close their eyes to the information that is available to us, and recognize that the source of life is not the parent. The source of life is God, and we cannot confuse the means from the source. Let's stand together. On the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we were not even surprised how the evil one could even attempt to create weather conditions in certain parts of the nation that would make it less favorable to ponder these things. Nonetheless, Father, we keep our eyes open to your truth. 
our hearts open to your will and ask, Father, that by your grace we take your truth, apply it to our lives. If there's anyone in any of these services who feels as though quality of life has been so diminished in their own personal experience, they no longer have the same strength that was necessary, is necessary as they once had to stand up for the sanctity of life. Remind them of a shifra. Remind them of a pua. May we stand strong and stand out, if necessary, stand alone as we communicate changeless truths in these changing times for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.